What up, what up? It's your boy Cam Meekins. This is the Cam Meekins Show. I don't even know what episode it is. We're going too deep. We've been too deep in the podcast for too long. I lost track. I had a good run. Late 20s. We're somewhere around there. I'm in the building with Jared Weiss, host of the NBA Daily Ding. My guy. Celtics, NBA writer for The Athletic. Jared, what's going on, man? I'm happy to be in L.A. Yeah, I'm very happy to be in L.A., that's for sure. Yeah, you've been here for, for quite some time, I feel like. It's just kind of getting a little postseason, just like vacation. Is this something you do every year? Or? So every year I come to L.A. for the 4th of July Yep. because my friends, uh, this band called The Main Squeeze, and uh, Teddy Roxpin, who's like a longtime friend of mine. Shout you, out, you, Teddy. You've known for a long time. Oh, yeah. So they do this jam session at their house. And they always have this like amazing house up in the hills, beautiful views. And every year, it's just like unbelievable. And you know, Boston, Boston is a great music scene. You know, we've had some decent artists come out of it. A I don't couple. know if you know any, but a couple. Uh, it's the, the live music, just like the whole, I guess, the inf- just like out here in LA, the infrastructure of being able to find just incredible music in any backyard, even. It's just right. unbelievable. So I would literally just come out here for that because the NBA usually has its summer league right after July 4th. Right. So I would just come out here early, spend a few days here before going to do that. Um, and so I always had a day job on top of covering the NBA for a long time. So it's like I could just get like a week of vacation off. So I'd be quick. This year is the first summer uh, where I was working full time just doing this. Didn't have a day job anymore. And I can actually travel now, obviously. So it's like right before my birthday a couple weeks ago, I was just like I called up Teddy and his uh, fiance Chantal. And I was just like, I'm coming tomorrow. And I just packed everything I could in a bag. Came out here without a plan, and I've just been here. I'm gonna probably do a month before. So I So you're just home. fully living that nomad life. Right exactly. Now, kind of. I've been very fortunate. A few people have been out of town. Let me crash at their pad, stuff like yeah. that. So it's worked out nice. So is it? I got to imagine that's pretty exciting now, being able to be full time as a writer and, and covering the NBA and covering the Celtics and everything like that. Um, what's that like? Is that transition like so freeing, or do, oh, yeah. you know, does it feel like you're just? Like, are you? Do you work in an office, or do you just work from no, home? Like, what's I have, your vibe? I work for my home office. Where uh, I work for the Athletic, and we're a digital company. So yeah. there's a couple offices across the country, but not in Boston. And so we just operate out of our own homes. Usually during the season, you're doing a lot of your work at the practice facility at yep. the arenas. And um, so that's started to pick up a little bit, but like we didn't go into the practice facility this year. So I was doing everything on Zooms from my house and at least one pair of underwear usually. Um, and so that, I mean, that sucked obviously because yeah. as a journalist, most of my job is talking to people in person. And it's been, I've been talking in emojis for the most part to like all the people that I right. know. And so it's just been, it's it just, it, this experience has sucked for everybody, obviously, but it's just been like hard to do your job the way you usually do your job if you're in this line of work. Yeah. Well, and for you too, like getting going on that and then all of a sudden the, the pandemic just threw a wrench in that whole oh, entire yeah. situation. And I imagine yeah. it's kind of hard to like keep up with people digitally as a reporter because I feel like so much of that is based off of like, you know, in person little interactions that you might have or then that turns into a bigger conversation and a bigger thing that you can cover or whatever you know you're so so you're right because a big part of journalism is just kind of being around the people on a daily basis and having more organic conversations and i i really don't like hitting people up for intel or that kind of stuff i don't like being transactional um so i could only do so much just kind of check it in, hope all is well, crap, which like every single person always says hope all is well. So yeah, you kind of have yeah, to remember yeah. like, you probably should stop saying that. But so doing that 
I mean, besides it just making harder to break news, it's just like it, what I liked was before that, when you're doing news breaking or you're doing analysis, you get to interface with the people you're talking about a lot. And so you can kind of establish a sense of rapport where you feel more comfortable talking about them publicly because you have a clear understanding. They understand where you're coming from. You understand more of the context behind what they're doing. And so we just didn't really have that much this year. It wasn't like it was anyone's fault. Like those were the protocols that they had to follow. No, of course. And it's starting yeah. to change, thankfully, back to the way things used to go. And there's there's a lot of changes to how we can do media uh, anyway. Like that's stuff that's been coming up a lot lately. Um, and there's ways we can do it to make it better for everybody involved, really. So this year is just so much. Honestly, it was Instagram stories was a huge part of it was responding to people's Instagram stories and trying to use that to spark more organic conversations where yeah. I'm not just hitting the person up just to get something from them. Right. Um, and so that, that was the main way I was doing it. Um, and so I feel like that's starting to change a little bit, like coming out to LA, actually getting to sit down and meet with people and talk to people. It's been better to actually kind of go back to a normal relationship. Yeah. It's funny how we've like gotten back to uh, all of the relevant stuff that we were missing and lacking but there was like a lot of dead weight that got cut out that probably won't come back. And it doesn't matter whether it's like your industry or mine or, or you know, completely unrelated world. There's so much shit that was just like unnecessary that we were doing on a day-to-day -day basis that we don't need to do anymore. You know, like we can do it over a phone call or a quick text exchange or, or whatever it might be. I feel like the music industry really thrives on bullshitting together. Right. And networking in a very obtuse way, I think. Yeah. Um. And you know, maybe that's not more than like journalism because journalism, there's kind of a, there's like an obvious goal in mind. Um. Where you know, mus maybe music, there's a bit of like feeling out the person to see if that's someone you want to work with. Yeah. But like it's more obvious when your roles are clearly more entrenched in journalism, or I should say, sports journalism, which is not real journalism, but it is sometimes they're 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 the same concepts. It's more though, entertainment right? than anything. I it's guess. all about like the mutual incentive. I feel like with journalism, whether it's sports journalism or, or regular journalism, right? Like they're both parties are getting something out of it. Yeah. Right. I th I think that at least the way that I like to do it is, I mean, I came up because I loved analyzing like X's and O's and like the stuff that's happening on the court with just basketball. I'm just a basketball person as far as like actual writing and. So for me, it was all about, I wanted to be a part of the NBA since I was a little kid. And I found my way into it. I just kind of like stumbled into that was, I got pretty good at breaking down what was happening and trying to make it digestible for the fans so that the fans could get a better appreciation of what they were watching. And then eventually I got, I got to the point where I think the players and coaches and executives that I would work with would want me, will want to work with me because they appreciated that I could communicate what they're working on in a more a more revealing way. And so they felt like they were better appreciated. Because you the actually public. were an X's and O's guy. Yeah. Kinda. Yeah. And so, you know, once you join a big company and you get more access and you get more responsibility and stuff like that, there is these, this push and pull between wanting to do that and then wanting to focus on like what is the drama soap opera stuff. And so I don't like doing that stuff so much, but it's definitely become, it's just become a bigger part of covering the NBA. And yeah. So, and you have to, when you're, when you're doing a craft, you have to diversify that craft to a certain degree if you want to get to the next level. And so, uh, you know, doing X and O analysis and like intricate analysis will get you so far. And then if you want to hit that next level of being like kind of like more well-renowned, being known across the country, being a major force in your specific market, you have to be able to do the other side of the coin. And so I've had to just do that more this year and doing that during this year where you're not really talking to people face to face, you're not getting to um, 
help people know where you're coming from. And so it doesn't seem as adversarial because I just don't like the adversarial nature of it. Mm -hmm. Despite what many people online think, I actually hate that part of it. Uh, And so it's just been this weird adjustment where we just, I I think just people aren't on the same page as much anymore because they're not around each other as much anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder just like, especially like in the music industry, where in the music industry, it's kind of like that where you don't have to be with the person in person to work with them. Oh yeah, and it's it's been moving like that over the last like ten years. Like my good friend Maddie Harris, mixed by Maddie, is his Instagram. He was like my producer. He used to go by Maddie Trump. So if you're a Sammy Adams fan or a Cam Meekins fan, you remember Maddie Trump, you know, brainchild, whatever. And so I assume he doesn't want to go by that name. Yeah, he anymore. dropped the Trump name yeah. for obvious reasons. But uh, I met Maddie back in Boston, and you know, I started working with him when I was 17 years old. He was producing all Sammy stuff. He produced, you know the whole Boston's Boy album with Sammy and great producer, fucking killing it. And then we moved out to LA together, basically, when I signed my first record deal and he was like my producer, my like right-hand guy. We did all my first music together. and Still to this day, he mixes everything that I do. But anyways, I say all that to say, five or six years ago, Maddie kind of saw all the bullshit in the music industry and was like, you know, this is all fun and games and it's cool and I'm trying to like get placements and get connected with these, you know, big writers and ma- make these songs. But... I think the way that this is going is all these people that are getting famous are making music in their fucking bedroom and then they're putting it out on SoundCloud or they're putting it out wherever. I want to be the guy that they go to over the internet to get their songs mixed. And so he started a website called mixandmastermysong.com. That's brilliant. Right? And he was the first guy that was like your digital engineer. Because all these kids, just like me, when I was 18, I started making music in my mom's freaking basement with you know not too much stuff different than what i have right here right a couple microphones whatever and now you can do that we transfer over all the files to a guy like maddie never even meet the person face to face but have this working relationship and creative relationship and i mean he's got a ton of tools now i mean like he's got systems where you can like both be listening to the mix in real time at like high quality audio you know, if you both have headphones on, like you can hear his mix in real time. And so you can be like, hey, I don't like that snare. Like turn it up a little. Like, you know, we're not talking about some like Bluetooth horrible quality where you can't tell the difference. Like really like live audio streaming from one location to another where you can like mix in real time. And so it was already going in that direction. And then the pandemic happened. And so now it's like everybody's collaborating in that way. Oh, just send me the verse or send me the files, do this because everyone's more comfortable in their home space. And two, a lot more people are independent these days. And so it's like, why would I spend all this money to have this recording studio for a night when I can make like the $2,000 investment one time and have all this equipment whenever I want it in my house? I was just at a friend's house last night who does uh, VO work. And he ch- took me into his little closet studio. Yeah. I was like, wow, the acoustics are unbelievable in here. And it was, just, need, it was yeah. just like sliding into the closet where it's up against the clothes. Right. And there's like two feet of wide space, basically. But the sound was amazing. Um, but it's funny what, ju- what you were just saying reminded me of Foreign Exchange, which is like I, I was obsessed with Little Brother when I was com- <sighs> like when I was in high school. Yeah. And I'll never forget the story behind Foreign Exchange, which was Fonte from Little Brother and Nicolay, a producer from the Netherlands, I want to say. Okay. Um, and their whole, they called it the foreign exchange because they never met. They met on like, thank you, they met on like forums or chat room, I forget what, back when I guess chat room and forum was a thing. Right. Um, and they made an amazing kind of like 
R&B popish album uh, just completely over the internet back what in like year was it yeah. 2005 or something right. like that it was just that was so innovative at the time of course yeah and I, I was thinking about that recently when I was talking to a friend of mine who is probably now one of my best friends in the world and I've only seen her in person like six or seven times but we connected through the internet and then we became really tight but 99% of they don't she doesn't even live in the same city as me but we're still yeah. like super tight um, and it's just kind of weird how a lot of a lot of our close relationships now form via the internet and that just kind of it, it fucks with my head because, like, for instance, I was in a relationship from senior year of high school until like three or four years ago. And so Internet dating was basically invented over that time frame. Wow. And so I just went on my first Tinder date like a few like a month ago. Or How something was like that? that? It wasn't very good. <laughs> um, cheers, by the way. But yeah, cheers. Yeah. It was necessary because I never needed to use a dating app because I would meet people just like through work or just going out and stuff like that. And then obviously with the pandemic it you know that that wasn't a thing anymore so like all right i guess i gotta try this yeah how was it like being single over the pandemic like were you on the apps during that like were people freaking out like oh like who are you no i i was i was not one of those people that was trying to do digital dates because i'm just like i don't want to waste my time to me like people would facetime for the first time i feel like i'm not hating i'm just saying it's just such a foreign concept i had a close friend who was doing it a lot yeah and i just like it sounded like he was enjoying it and stuff like that but I just was like, I don't want to waste my time trying to form a, a intimacy with a person that I'm probably not going to see at all in person. Mm. And like, I'd just be willing to wait. Maybe I guess later in the pandemic that started to change. Yeah. I think we got to a point where we we're like, are we ever even going to go out into society again? No, there was a point there where it's like, you're so fucking scared of even seeing, you know, anybody, the fucking sure. mailman. Well, I don't want to fuck the mailman, so I, you know, well, that'd be uh, good. Yeah. But by the way, this is amazing. It's good, right? Yeah. yeah it's what is this? Sazerac rye. I'm going to talk like I know what it is, but I don't, <laughs> I don't have any fucking idea. I'm definitely getting this when I get home. I got it at the really nice whiskey shop. Mm. That's that's all I know. Yeah, so I don't like online dating. It's weird. Um, but yeah. I, I get it now. It's super efficient, especially like going out into LA and you don't know anyone here. I mean, I, I do know a lot of people here, but it's like, it's not, it takes some time to meet people and right. that stuff. So uh, it's definitely been very useful for sure to like fill in some of the days where I don't have stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, man. I mean like the, well, what's, what's interesting too, back to like the, the basketball and like the writing stuff with, with all this that went on too. I feel like, you know, people moving towards this more digital way of interacting, but for you being someone who's kind of covering that world too, I mean, just by happenstance, the NBA, I feel like, kind of freaking saved the day, right? With Adam Silver making the announcement to cancel the league, that was at a time when our government was refusing to take anything seriously at that point, when the science was saying one thing and they were, you know, their message was completely different. So I had the craziest experience. I think a lot of people thought that was that moment was crazy. For me, it was extremely crazy because... I'm at my friend's house in uh, in Indianapolis because the Celtics had just finished a game there. Yeah, and uh, we're watching CNN, and CNN shows the Rudy Gobert thing happening. Right, and I turn to them. I'm like, guys, we have a problem. 
I had just interviewed Rudy Gobert like three days before that. Wait, uh, wait. So Rudy was the Rudy. Rudy was the one that tested sick. positive. Rudy Gobert got sick. I don't think he even had symptoms. I think he just tested who did positive. he get it from? Did they ever figure that out? Or he was like the the first known there's, case. There's the a league. few people he could have gotten it from, yeah. but but didn't yeah. he like lick the fucking microphones or some was, shit like that? Wasn't he, there some story like that? It was like he was joking. He was. Uh, I think he was getting asked about it at a press conference right. and all the reporters had their recorders on the table in front of him. Right. And I think he like touched his hand to his like mouth and then like touched all of them. Ugh, Jesus. And like, I didn't think that was such a big deal. I thought that was like kind of funny. Yeah, no, sure. Um, sure. You know, if, if anyone else in the world did that, we'd just be like, Oh, that's stupid, but whatever. But right. obviously because of, you know, and so I have no idea if that gave anyone COVID. I did talk to a friend who was one of those people with one of those recorders, and she was not very happy about it. Did she end up getting sick? Uh, no, I don't think so. I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure. I'm no, pretty sure not. Yeah. Um, but so I had just interviewed him and then, like, you know, do like the dap and like hug kind of thing when we we're done. Yeah. And so I'm seeing this like this guy has COVID. I'm like, I probably got it from him. My friends are doc. My friend's a doctor, and the other one also works. Uh, his wife also works in like the medical world, and so like they the ones that you were staying with, yeah, in Indianapolis, yeah. yeah. And so like they knew what to like kind of do, and so we got on the phone with the Indian app, uh, the Indiana Health Board, and I'm telling them I literally just shook hands with Rudy Gobert. Can you please just get me a test? And they couldn't even get me a test because it was so early. It was just when it was starting. So yeah, right. They only had like ten tests in the entire city. Probably it was ridiculous. Yeah, that was a crazy time because there was just so much confusion about what was what. And I mean, even throughout the whole entire situation, I feel like we didn't know how the fuck anything spread or, or you know. But, I mean, I had, I had like 48 hours where I just had no idea if I was going to make it for it. So. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and you're thinking it's this crazy thing, which it was. But, you know, at that point, too, it was like even more of a foreign thing that we just didn't understand the severity of yet people were still saying to me that day this is probably like just getting a bad flu so i think we were that we were still at the point where we were underestimating the right. severity of it right and like i know i'm the kind of person that does not want to get covid because it's like i already like i already have like some asthma so i'm like this is gonna fuck up my yeah shit if i do it so did you have any like uh idea that the nba was gonna just shut shit down beforehand or did you find out along the, time, the same time that everybody else did we we knew that it was definitely a possibility i think earlier earlier that day i can't remember who i had talked to but we were i was already talking to the celtics pr people like at, asking them like what is your plan are you going to go to milwaukee's that's where they were heading to next and they, their plan was to go there and then figure it out from there. But mm -hmm. we kind of, I think, going into that game on the Tuesday, so it was the day, the day before, I think, uh, Rudy tested positive, we had changed the way that we were operating already where everyone had to be spread apart and, like, far away and stuff like that. Mm. So there was already some sort of parameters being put into place. But I don't think anyone expected a full shutdown to happen. Yeah, right. I remember I went out to Minnesota to – to hang out with with Carl because my birthday is March fourteenth. Oh God! Right, and so I flew out to to Minnesota, and I you know I I was already kind of starting to like in February I went to the grocery store and like bought a bunch of groceries and like stocked the freaking house with like pantry items and bottles of water sure, yeah. and everything like that because I was like on my doomsday prepper shit because I was like this shit's gonna get crazy, uh, but yeah like March tenth. Uh, we flew out to Minnesota. We were going to go celebrate my birthday for the long weekend. And we were about to go bowling. And all of a sudden we like got told by Carl because he like got told before they went public like, oh yeah, no, they're shutting down the whole entire league. And I was just like, oh wow. 
And then we ended up staying in Minnesota for three months. Like it was a weird time, man, you know? Um, but, but yeah, it was just nuts that there was, you know, no leadership happening from anyone in the government at that point, you know? And Adam Silver kind of stepped into this weird position where like he ended up being the voice on this before anybody else. It's, it's so weird because I feel like the NBA has put themselves rightfully so at the center of a lot of these social changes or like event yeah. changes in the country, um, which has definitely been a part of my job, which I didn't expect to be a part of it for right. sure. And then my background is in governance and politics for most of my early uh, part of my career. So, um, so I like kind of, I kind of like knew how to deal with it to a degree. Although I don't, I think a lot of people probably disagree for sure. <laughs> but um, I think what was so interesting about it was that the NBA was very forceful in its decision making even though a lot of people felt like it was kind of lax. Obviously, it was a way ahead of everybody else. Right. And we saw the ripple effect was immediate. Like, once the NBA made the move, every other sports league in the world basically followed suit. I don't well, know about... Everybody in the world yeah, followed suit. sure. Because they thought, okay, well, if the NBA thinks that this is not something that we should move forward with, then, like, we got to look at what the fuck we're doing as he, just an average person. Well, the NBA is such a unique thing because it's the largest gathering of people indoors that you basically have, except for, like, yeah. a football stadium that's in a dome. But so it was, I think a lot of sports probably thought that because they're outdoors, they would be okay for a little while. And maybe there were some, I think there were a couple like baseball, if, if I remember correctly, kind of tried to hold on for like a little bit, maybe yeah. like another 12 to 24 hours. And I get it because like we're thinking we're outside, so we're safe. Um, but I think when everyone just saw the NBA actually pulling back, it was just such a shocking thing that it kind of clicked for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So what was your experience once they like made that announcement? Did you just like go home and just Well so for one I was I wasn't home and right. we were I was in Indiana and everyone was thinking, are they gonna shut the planes down? So right. I was thinking I might just get stuck in my friend's place for a long time. Who knows? And I was Indiana's a little too far from Boston to just like do the drive. I mean, obviously at a certain point I would probably try try to do it, but the funny part was it's not too bad. I've done that drive. A it few was times. It like twelve hours or something. Yeah, like that. it's not that crazy. It's I mean it's 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 sure. a drive, but it's but it's not a drive you'd want to make. Obviously, sure, sure. Um, and yeah, you know, I assume I'd have to rent a car, and that probably would be costly. Yeah, if you, could you even rent cars at that point? Like I don't remember. So like everything just kind of shut. <sighs> everything down. definitely got a little crazy. I mean, you know, in those couple first days, maybe. But I'm just speaking out of my ass sure. at this point. I mean, that's what I do for a living. Yeah, but that's what we do. I remember so. My friend had his bachelor party scheduled for that weekend after like that started mm. in uh, in the Rockies in Colorado. Yeah, and so I had to make I hadn't even bought my ticket yet because oh no I I had bought my ticket it was going to be from Milwaukee so my plan was stay with the Celtics until they're done in Milwaukee they're supposed to go back home I think at that point mm -hmm. so I was going to take the weekend off and just go to the bachelor party and I had to like reschedule and I had this like moment where I'm like do I I can get a flight home do I try to take that flight home knowing I can get home or do I take the risk of flying out to the, to the Rockies and maybe I get stuck there for God knows how, how long. Yeah. And so you know what I did, obviously. I took the risk oh. and I went to Colorado and I just remember going to the airport and talking to some of the like, TSA people there yeah. and they were like, we, like we're like we waiting for the word that the FAA is going to ground all flights. So even at the airport, I was like, I don't even know. I might just get stuck here and not even make it to Denver. And then when I landed in Denver, I'm like, I really might be stuck here. Thankfully, I had a couple friends that I probably just be like freaking. Uh, who was that? Uh, the terminal. Oh, uh, um, is that Tom Hanks? Tom Hanks yeah. in the terminal. 
And my English is better than his. So yeah, that yeah. was a nuts accent in yeah. the movie. Honestly, I watched that recently because it's on Netflix now, and I was like, man, like he really went for it with oh, that yeah. accent. But um, what was I remember was really funny was so when I got to Denver and got to my friend's place, uh, his roommate who I like kind of know because we're in the same fantasy football league, he literally wouldn't let me into the house because I told them about the Rudy Gobert situation. Oh yeah, and so he literally made me like wait outside. It was the funniest thing ever. What they like spray you down with fucking Lysol? No, he never point? let me into the house. He oh, was wow. like, I'm not letting him in. I don't want to bring. And I, I understood. I was like yeah. annoyed, but like I understand. No, I get it, man. Yeah. yeah, it was it was a weird time, dude. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean. I, uh, I mean, maybe he just really didn't want me in the house. That's very possible. Yeah, well, maybe, yeah, maybe. I no, but I, I, I was, I was so psyched out about anything, man. Because when we came back to LA after like months of just being up in Minnesota, just in the middle of nowhere. I mean, when I was in the middle of nowhere, I kind of was like, oh, this isn't really half bad, you know. I mean, it was a horrible situation that was going on. But I'm just saying, like, from a mental standpoint, it wasn't that hard to like be kind of a recluse in the middle of nowhere. And when we came back to LA, it was, and then it started getting really bad in California right when we came back too. And so we were just like fully locked down for so long. And it was just, you know, I I, I don't think I realized at the time, like mentally, like where I was, but now looking back, having that like opened up my life again, I'm just like, man, I don't know if I could do that again. Oh, we were so... I was... Like, I started therapy while I was in quarantine. Yeah. I was just... I was mentally just so fucked What'd up. What, did you do the fucking BetterHelp shit, or how, how'd you... No, it's funny, because I think they, they advertise for my podcast now, so I probably should try it. Uh, oh, they're great. I've heard they're, they're absolutely... Yeah, no, it's, it seems great. <laughs> uh, no, I just... I wanted to try cognitive behavioral therapy, because it's really focused on just, like, behavioral pattern change, mm. and that's something I've always needed. Um so like give me an example of that like example would be just like talking about i mean so like we use the addiction model a lot with my therapist uh, i think it's probably because she specializes in in that kind of work um and so i like i wanted to get control of my eating habits which obviously got so much worse during the pandemic because I, I didn't really want to go grocery shopping so i was just ordering delivery mm -hmm. and i was wasting so much money on yeah. DoorDash and crap and uh, those and companies are just the fucking worst. Dude. <laughs> they're the best, but they're also the worst. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so I so like I wanted to just get back to like actually cooking for myself and making smart decisions. And I I was I was like gaining so much weight because I wasn't traveling anymore. So when you're on the road, you're constantly just you're walking everywhere and you're just constantly getting up, having your routine. You go out and then you're gone for the whole day until you get home, that kind of thing. And then when you lose that during the pandemic, it's like you're so sedentary. It's so hard to just keep yourself active. And I'm not like a runner or anything like that. But so, yeah, I got a Peloton, started doing CBT therapy. But basically, like the therapy will be about talking, like breaking down your behavioral patterns to try to kind of understand what's the part of your decision making process where you make the wrong decision. And then trying to understand, like, how can you change the pattern of decisions you make up until that point so that you make the right decision. Right. And it's kind of like any sort of therapy you try where just by analyzing or just anything you do, when you just analyze and understand something better and how it works, you don't even you don't even have to necessarily make a, a, a distinct change to your mindset so much as just understanding the process just helps you kind of slowly unravel your bad decision making processes. Yeah, so well said. So much. Yeah, when you just peel back the layers and understand the mechanics of how it all works, even if you don't tangibly understand the solution at that point just knowing how it all works when you then are presented with a situation where you might have acted 
in a certain way, you know, in a behavioral way that you just kind of fall into over and over. You just something in you just thinks a little bit differently about it, maybe. Well, so like my biggest revelation was that I thought I was like addicted to eating. Mm. And I mean, sure, maybe I am. But like um, my therapist made a great point that it's really more an avoidance behavior in that eating will be a way to satiate anxiety or stress or pressure from something else. Mm. And so a big part of just curing that, and I'm sure this is probably helpful, helpful for a lot of people that are addicted to anything, whatever it is, of just trying to understand what triggers you to go to that and then just focusing on trying to improve that area and seize more control over that area so that you don't feel the need to like immediately fall back into something that's comforting. Yeah. And also just getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is something so yeah, so that's easy what I was going to ask is like so what did you identify as that that cause of the the behavior of like when it comes to food or ordering in and as opposed to making something at home like what was the root cause of it it was just avoiding the anxiety or yeah. something like that I, I think it wasn't like a specific source of anxiety so much it's just like i mean we what is it's it like mil- behavior is it like millennial overload syndrome is what people call it but like the idea that you have so many things that right. you're responsible for and that you can do nowadays yeah in the younger generation that you get overwhelmed by the responsibility you let stuff fall by the wayside that you should be taken care of mm. i just kind of like felt like i was stuck in that um, and also cause especially when I used to work a day job and had the MBA stuff, mm-hmm. I was just stretched so thin right. that I just couldn't handle all the stuff that I was responsible for. Well, that's the, that's the hard thing about food, right? This is like, realistically, if you want to like eat well, it's like two or three hours out of your day. Yeah. Right. And but we so have that time during the pandemic. We do. Yeah. Absolutely. But, and, and we kind of have that time no matter what, it's just a time management question. But so many of us are just like incapable of, of managing that time in that way. And and I'm like that every single day. It's way easier for me to just like order some random shit or go pick up some random shit that's like not as healthy or is like way more salty or something like that than cooking something at home or having something that's maybe healthier alternative just because of the time aspect of it. And I think that a lot of people, especially myself, fall into this this kind of this conundrum of when you think you've made a mistake that you have to then then like your chance to redeem yourself is over from there. So mm-hmm. like if you eat too much, it's like you have a you you eat something unhealthy earlier in the day and then you just think, oh so the, just I gotta throw it. yeah, exactly. And so I used to fall into that behavior all the fucking time. And so Well, know, that is kind of addiction kind of behavior. Sure. Sure. Right? But it's like like life overall, obviously, but especially stuff like that, it's way more nuanced in that you can have a slip up and then you can just immediately get back on the right track and you're still mitigating. Cause like, it's not like your body completely resets when you go, you know, go to bed overnight. No, of course. So it's not like every single day is literally a completely different isolated right. thing. And I, I experienced that in just like my work all the time where, um, especially cause like, at least like with my work, it gets aggregated where people will try to condense my work and take a lot of the nuance out of it and even mm-hmm. draw false conclusions from what I said or embellish what I said. Um, or just like just take a part of what I said and not have the rest of the context around it in the proper way. And so people tend to look at just like stuff I report, just like stuff in general as way too um, all or nothing in that like, like if you try to analyze why a problem, why something didn't work out, people try to find one specific thing or person to blame. When like a lot of the time, just stuff in life doesn't work out because of multiple variables or just like not everybody was perfectly on the same page and things like that. It takes a lot of self-discipline to um, 
identify it as that and not like blame yourself or, you know, kind of think of things in, in more of like a negative undertone and to just be able to go through things and kind of like take it, accept it for what it was and go to the next thing and do that positive thing. It, you know, that's, that's something that's like a skill that is almost something you have to, you know, learn and it has to become a discipline. Right. Well, I feel like we always want to get everything right. And I mean, like putting out music, I'm sure it's like you probably everything you've put out, you felt like it wasn't perfect. Mm -hmm. Or even if you thought it was perfect at the time, over time, either you changed or matured or expanded your taste or whatever, or you just moved on from a specific style you thought was good. Totally. And you won't feel the same way. That's why like, I can't go back and read my old stuff. Yeah, probably. I probably go in like a one to two year window of I can't look back anything beyond that because I think it's all trash. Yeah. So I, I think like being an artist or being a writer or being any of these things where we're like basically creating an asset out of thin air, right? In order to be the artist, it's not creating the art that makes you the artist. It's putting it out that makes you the artist, right? To be a writer, it's not writing that, that makes you a writer. It's It's putting out the piece. And so... It's so easy to get caught up in like being a perfectionist about your work, like in music, like so many people are like that. And I've been like that a million times, but I like always come back to the concept of just like an idea is a great idea, like the first time around. And after so much tweaking and changing, just let it be what it is and, and put it out there. And that's gotten me in trouble a lot in my life and in my career because I am kind of like scatterbrained. I want to just go to the next thing and do the next thing. And so that's like how my creativity flows. And so I'll make music and I just want to put it out. And I don't want to think about like releasing it on a certain schedule or doing this. I, I want to put it out, you know, and because then, then I can go to the next thing. And so it's, you know, this weird balance of, you know, wanting to perfect things, but also wanting to like get it out because getting it out is what makes you the artist, you know, and allows you to go and do the next thing to obsess over and perfect. And so I've tried to embrace that now as I've gotten older as like a creative person and looking back at my career and back at the music that I've made over the last 10, 12 years and thinking about that, I just try and kind of what you're talking about, like have that discipline to say like, you know, something is what it is. And this song was great and this song was awesome and this song maybe wasn't as good but like they're all valuable in their own right because they're all a moment in time and I can't pinpoint what makes one song better than another you know whereas you maybe probably can't pinpoint what makes one of your pieces that you wrote better than the next one it just kind of happens sometimes and it is those random variables that we can't put our finger on that determine when something is going to be great so therefore you just have to like do the practice. You have to do the thing that you do so much to put yourself in the place where greatness can happen. Sure. And it's funny because like bas basketball went through this evolution a few years ago with the, the whole analytics revolution. And the whole thing was everyone was obsessed with you only want to take three pointers or layups. And they... They got so obsessed with that because it was maximizing efficiency and opportunity for every shot you're taking that they would avoid a lot of just like good looks that weren't as efficient in the opportunity. Right. But I feel like we're moving past that point in the sport and we're seeing, especially this year, this year has been kind of nuts because so many guys are hurt, whatever. But there's a lot of, I think, 
reversion back to or reverting back to some of the stuff that was really successful before that started to take off because in reality it's like when whenever you do something a certain way you're basically shifting resources from one area to another area to emphasize that and so like i learned that as being a big fan of like headphones being an audiophile something we we're talking about before is uh, for on the air was how like i learned over time that what makes a headphone great isn't that it's like perfect but that it's actually kind of compromise and sound so the sound is shaped in a certain way attuned to a certain way that makes it sound pleasing but whenever you will increase the treble that might decrease the mid mids or something like that so you have to find some sort of balance on the eq scale to tune it to make it sound pleasing and so everything in life is that way where like for me i was doing mostly like detailed x and o stuff and so while i thought it was super informative it was kind of clunky to read and also, if you don't really give a crap about learning the details of how the game works, you're going to find this extremely boring. Um, and it's funny is now when I read people doing that kind of work, I just skim through it really quickly just to see like the important points that they're making. Cause like, I just don't even, I don't even, I'm not even that interested in it right now. And so I don't know if that's like an evolution or if it's just um, our taste. It doesn't, it's not that our taste necessarily evolves so much as it kind of cycles over time. And yeah. so like I used to wear only super colorful shit. Now I basically wear black t-shirts every single day. Yeah, and it's just because like I like the monochromatic look right now, but I'm sure it's going to shift over time. Well, I do. I'm curious what you think. I mean, it seems like we're at a place where it's hard to get to like a level of depth on stuff because there's just no need to, I guess, because we have the ability to find out anything on our phones and can consume so much at all times that like there's, a, you know, just no interest in going to a level of depth on anything, whether it's like sports analysis or, you know, I think music, I, like albums are shorter, like, you know, I think it's that now that there's so much out there, you have to really deliver. So that's why like Kanye's seven song era was so genius, even though he failed on, I think his own album where I thought that was the worst one of all those albums that came out. Yeah. But I thought it was brilliant because there's so much music out there. Like I am, constantly trying to chase new music and it's an it's it's too much effort to chase it all because there's so much good stuff out there that you have to be really precise and really concise and so like that's why my stories i try to be way more concise now i try to do short sentences i try to like cut out as much fluff i really think less is more more than ever now and which is i hated the idea of less is more i was a maximalist for so long yeah and then i kind of realized that I was just, I think it was like, I was personally just trying to prove to people that I knew what I was doing, hoping people would think that I'm good. And I think now that I've done that enough, I don't have to like prove myself anymore and I can just be confident in doing what I do well. And so that allows me to do But there's like a lot of like album. beautiful, you know, there's just something beautiful about being able to use, you know, a very few amount of words to describe something in, in such an articulate way that gets the whole point across. I mean, that's, that's what being a musician really is, yeah. I mean, in, especially in rap and hip hop music, right? It's all about your interpretation of this like very large concept into a concise amount of words that also happen to rhyme together, which is why like MF doom was like so fucking incredible. Cause he could rhyme at like the highest level possible and also be saying something that's like really meaningful too. And so a lot of people can do both or, or sorry, a lot, a lot of people can do one or the other, but they can't do both. Right. 
And that's what made MF Doom like a genius was that he could like rhyme at this level that no one else could. And he was actually talking about substantive stuff that no one else was really talking about either. And it's just like, Jesus Christ. He's my single biggest inspiration. Yeah. Um, it's funny because people will sometimes ask me like, what what writers are your biggest inspirations? He's the first one I say every single time. Right. Um, I mean, there's some, like, it's funny, my actual journalism career, my inspiration was Zach Lowe from ESPN. I literally was just like trying to copy what he was doing. And I eventually like found my own way to do that. Um, uh, but like, I was just trying to literally just rip him off when I first started. Uh, and I think I've told him that before. Um, and so I'm sure he hears that constantly every day. But yeah. so, uh, but Doom is the person that inspired me because Doom, his ability to stretch out a bar over the end of the measure and just like keep going Ugh. and then finish and then have a pause in the middle of the measure, you know, just like he completely destroys the structure and then comes back to it. And it's like him and Miles Davis are probably my two favorite musicians of all time. Yeah. And they were both brilliant at, you know, it's like taking what feels like something standard and then just like kind of taking you off of it and then. You get you're like lost, and you're like, how are we ever going to get back to being on beat? And then they somehow get you back there, and so that's what I try to emulate in my writing. So like those, like Miles Davis, which people ask me all the time, like how could a jazz trumpeter inspire your writing? And it's like, well, I guess maybe MF Doom is a more easier representation of it because he's actually rapping. But you know, when, the more you try to diversify your inspirations outside of your own craft, I think the more that you can expand your own craft because mm. you're taking more unique approaches to it. Yeah. And if you can figure out how to make it work, it can actually separate you. Well, and the whole like foundation of jazz too is is kind of doing things that are just not quite the right thing to do from a music theory standpoint yeah. and then bringing it back to center, right? And so if you take that approach to... Uh, writing a piece right or any type of like creative writing or, or you know reportive writing or whatever that's uh a just a, a system that can totally um just work perfectly in in that medium as opposed to music you know yeah and and i think it's also like when you pull inspiration from people like I, I'm sure a lot of people heard me say that I, I'm inspired by Miles Davis or MF Doom. They're like, that's absurd because those are the best people ever and you suck. Like, yeah, of course I suck. <laughs> but I'm we're, it's a lifelong pursuit to try to be that great. But like, we, right. should look, we should look to the greats and try to be more like them. Yeah, but yeah, 100%, dude. No. I, I hate that when people are like, oh, like, like people ask me all the time, like, oh, dude, like who, who are your inspirations? And I'll be like Kanye or like Jay-Z. And like, and it's because I love how Jay-Z is like about his business and his music. And I know that I'll never be at that level of music and business like Jay-Z, but I can aspire to be like that or be inspired by the way that he handled his career. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. If everybody were as good as Jay-Z, we would have too many Jay-Z's in the world, right? It's very true. And like, that's what makes Jay-Z singular is that right. he's kind of, or he's one of a few of a kind. Right. Yeah. Um, it's funny because Jay-Z is one of those guys who, I felt like their, his music kind of lost a little bit of its uh, impact on me mm. for a long time. Like even but, the old shit you're saying, like when you no, listen to not the old so shit? much, but like the new, yeah, no, his yeah. old stuff is pretty timeless. Like going back and listening to Reasonable Doubt a few weeks, whenever the oh yeah, twenty fifth anniversary. I was listening yeah. back. I'm like, how the hell did he like make this shit? Like this, him and like Clark Kent and Just Blaze was on that album, right? Uh, I think so. I don't know. It was like Ski Beats was on that, yeah. and um. Yeah, Just Blaze was probably on that. Uh, I think uh, was No ID on that too. But That's a good question. But yeah. like, like, can I live that album right. or that song? That was one of the first songs that kind of introduced me to jazz, um, because you know it has like the trumpet lead yeah. to it. And 
it's funny because so I grew up on hip hop and I was aware that James Brown was like a main sample for so much stuff. Right. So I knew that there was like horns within it. And my mom was a music teacher, so I was always kind of interested in orchestra stuff. And I just never really could like clearly hear it or like really clearly recognize it. And then like Can I Live was one of those first songs where I'm like, oh, I can clearly hear like the beauty of the yep. trumpet. And my dad was always obsessed with Miles Davis, so I didn't like it much when I was younger. But then I think just when like when when you started smoking weed, like that's when your actual your perspective starts to open up. Well, you you yeah. can yeah you can appreciate jazz a lot more exactly <laughs> yeah for sure. But that I I think that's because you're able to kind of take those uh, you know your your guard is down, and so you're less concerned about things having to be exactly right, and you're more open to things being a little bit off, and like you're just more accepting of it and you're like wait no that actually does work that's amazing and i think just like smoking weed in high school just made me understand that not everything needs to fit like the uniform mainstream thing um which i feel like is probably more is i think we're in an era where people are probably jumping away from that to a degree i think because there's already so much mainstream crap yeah the stuff that really succeeds as a stuff that has that unique sound. Well, now it's like all these different pockets. Yeah. I feel like when we were growing up, it was like mainstream things and then it was like airplay and alternative. Underground. Yeah, yeah. Right. Things. But now everybody's got their own little pocket of things that they're into. And it's almost like the in thing now is to be an outcast or to be unique. So now everybody's unique. So now, so now it's no different because yeah. you, you know what I mean? Like I think, Growing up in this environment with people on TikTok and stuff like that, you're just consuming so much. And then therefore, like you can go down this rabbit hole of like getting into like one particular kind of scene that you're into from a music standpoint or a culture standpoint, whatever. It's why like it blows my mind that like the Tyler album just came out recently. Right. And it's actually I know an album is going to be great when I don't like it at first. Cause it's like me trying to understand what I'm listening to. Right. And right. then, you know, the Tyler album. So I, uh, I've been driving a car around that doesn't have like a, like a hookup. So I just had to like, listen to like one album on repeat basically. So, so you're like actually it. playing like CDs or, or what do you mean? No, like I just have my AirPods in. Oh, so okay. it's like, I can't like control anything while I'm driving. So like, I just have to put on this one album. So I just been listening to that over and over again. I, I have my AirPods on transparency mode so I can hear everything that's happening. You're for just the record. cruising around yeah. with so your AirPods. Driving around. I've just been driving. And I've Is been, that illegal? Could you get pulled over for that? I have no idea. I'm probably going to go to jail once this comes out. But <laughs> I don't know. I have it on transparency mode. and I'll get out I'll, of like, LA before this drops. My thing is when I use my AirPods, when I put them on transparency mode to make sure I can like hear everything, I'll like snap my fingers right next to my ear so that I like know I can like hear it clearly. Yeah. Um. So I do that whenever I get in the car just like to make sure. And a lot of the time I'll drive. If I'm like in heavy traffic, I'll take one out. So like the side facing the window i can hear everything that's going on just to make sure i'm extra safe yeah um so don't worry mom but uh the point is i've been listening to it over and over again and it's just it's one of those tyler's one of those artists where every time he puts something out the his approach because he has a signature sound he has like kind of like the minor kind of like flat you know synths and like that kind of stuff a bit of like a kind of fluty orchestral sound sometimes and like obviously like the the grumble yeah the grumbling 808s kind of stuff but like he's found a way to carry that sound while kind of I feel like he's reinvented it so much every single time. And it's not like with like Kanye, where I feel like Kanye has kind of dramatically changed the sound, changed the instruments he's working with. Um, J. Cole, who I feel like I love his vibe, but I don't feel like it's changed that much. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was one of the criticisms. His last album I thought was great, but it just sounded like kind of like most other J. Cole albums. Yeah. 
you know, and like Drake just like he just does a different country every single time, right? So, yeah, facts. so, and like I love it. Like those are my those are like four of my favorite artists. Yeah, well, world. he's They're figured f- out a formula and it works for him. Sure, just, but sure, you're right, yeah. But like Tyler, I think Tyler is the one I've come to admire the most because he has stuck to his to like his identity while continuing to evolve it and like also his lyrical content has evolved. He's no longer eating cockroaches now. He's rapping about how he loves. The, how the Rolls Royce has a see-through ceiling. Yeah, right. And I usually hate it when an artist goes to that. And, like, there's been some songs of his where I'm, like, kind of, like, cringing a little bit about it. But, like, he somehow has done an amazing job of keeping it relatable. And I think that's the person I'm trying to emulate the most in my work. Like, I want to continue to do what I do best, but changing the framework of how I deliver it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, the guru guru uh, saying, he's like, you know, the style's updated, the style of beats is updated, but it's still guru and premiere. I just want to be gangster. It's right. Like, Got to represent Boston well. Yeah. I, I think, though, it's more relatable now, the the flashy, like, Rolls Royce rap or whatever, because we're fucking seeing it all the time from these people, right? Yeah. Which is also fucking with us, like, crazy, too, because we're just seeing these unattainable things, you know, I mean, everywhere I, that we look. I remember I had an Acura uh, TSX growing up. I was very, very fortunate. Um, and Drake would always rap about how he had, he's like made it out the accurate TSX. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, come on, man. Like, I thought that yeah, was, yeah, a, it was a pretty good car. I thought that was a really good car. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was lucky that I had that car. <laughs> I think it's still a very good car. Right. I was actually renting, um, I, I was using Turo out here. Yeah. And Turo's awesome because this, this woman had a, a like a brand new Benz for like $70 a day and I was renting it from her. And I was driving. I'm like, you know, I kind of like my Acura better because it's like just like more. Well, Acura's drive pretty nice. Man. Yeah, I mean, th- those are smooth. those are solid cars. I feel like are I, they are they a lot to maintain like price wise? Like, are they like the other? I don't know. I've been leasing, so <laughs> I just don't I don't maintain it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, they gouged me so much when I owned one. But um, it was funny. I went to I wanted to get like a Honda like Accord, like the cheap Honda Accord, because I thought like that's what I could afford. That was like the smarter choice. Right. And Honda actually offer me a worse deal for that than just like accurate to get a TS, TLX really? now again. So I, I ended up, I'm paying like less than $200 a month for the Acura. So like I have Damn. no idea how I got so lucky. How many miles you got on that thing? Like, it's yeah. like 7,500 a year. That's pretty um, good. Yeah, yeah, that's like the baseline. Um, 7,500 a year is actually kind of a lot, right? Like, I think it's, yeah, like, I mean, because or, or of, maybe I was thinking 10 a year. I, yeah, I, I think so. 10 is like the reasonable amount. Like 7,500 to be a little, a little careful with little that. A little low, yeah. But, because of the pandemic, I but shit, man, two hundred dollars a month, you could pay for the miles on the on the back end. Who exactly, gives a fuck? exactly, right? You know, yeah, no. But driving in Boston, I feel like you're not. Well, I guess if you're well, but they practice in in Boston now, right? They don't they don't go to the fucking Health Point anymore. Remember yeah. that place? Oh, Did you ever God. see that place? Yeah, I used to go there all the time. Yeah, yeah. I grew up with uh, Danny Ainge's kids. A senior so, crew, and yeah, all yeah, them? yeah, 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 yeah. And so we would play basketball there, and we would like play pickup there when whenever we could get in there and, and everything like that. No, we had the best times going in there and stealing the fucking Gatorades from the Gatorade machines <laughs> and everything like that. Can can crew hoop? I've never actually seen. Them oh, play. he can ball, dude. Yeah, no. both Cooper and crew can can ball. I Absolutely. mean, their older their oldest brother Austin was a really good college yeah. player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think crew played it or uh, Cooper played at uh, BYU too. Oh, okay, so yeah, that's but awesome. yeah, no, they, they they can they can ball for sure, but. uh that was that was that's a little bit more of a hike to get to from Boston. Yeah, Waltham. that was that sucks. And like Boston traffic is uh it used to be bad and now it's so bad that everybody's saying you that can go. the traffic yeah. is worse everywhere. I'm hearing traffic in Miami and New York and all this stuff. Is that cuz everybody got a fucking car during the pandemic? I have no idea. 
I didn't realize it was bad everywhere else. That's what I I didn't even know that either. But I was with a couple friends a couple days ago, and they were like, "New York traffic is fucking insane. Like it takes like they like go to Long Island. They're like it takes like three hours to get from Manhattan to, to Long Island." Holy shit! Like, that's geez. crazy. I would never drive anywhere. And I think hours. everybody in New York during the pandemic got a car. That makes sense. Because like, nobody wants to take the subway. Exactly. I would never. I don't know when I'm going to be willing to get back on the subway in New York. Yeah, I don't know, man. No. Yeah, I, I could not imagine. I used to live in New York, and I could not imagine living there during like the last year. That was the one thing that I was like, I'm so glad I live in LA now because it's just more conducive to a like get the fuck away from me lifestyle. And you just can't do that in New York. And I just, I don't know, I'd be weirded out even now, even after everything's kind of after being vaccinated and everything. I mean, I know everyone that I talked to that lived there were they either got out because they were like, I don't want to be anywhere near here, yeah. or they were like, it's nice because it's like a ghost town here. But yeah, I guess one of those I places that. where you have to be rubbing up against everybody. It's the culture of the of the city. Yeah. It's like to just be in the mix like crazy, which is why people say when they come to L.A., they it's they have a hard time making uh, making friends and like meeting people and stuff. Because if you're coming from that New York East Coast lifestyle of like, oh, let's just go to the bar. And then oh, I got a friend coming who's going to meet us. Here. We're going to go to this other place, too. And there's a couple people over here. And it's like, oh, hey, this is fucking Joey. Like, nice to meet you, dude. Like, whatever. That doesn't happen in L.A. It's like, hey, six of us are all going to meet at one place. And we're all separately going to drive there. We're going to spend two hours there. And then we're all going to leave because it takes an hour to ba- get back to all of our separate houses where we live in completely different neighborhoods. Right. Yeah. So you can live like in the top of the valley or you live in Orange County. It's yeah. Like, it's insane. Exactly. Like I, I've lived in L.A. for four years. I don't think I've gone to the west side more than 10 times. <laughs> you know, I I've been saying on the west side, I can't get anybody from the east side to come see me. It's I have to go yeah. everywhere. No, it's like a, it's a it's a fucking like debate out here. Yeah. You know, like if you, like my friend was trying to move here and he you know surveyed all his people that he knows that lives in la and everyone he's asking like oh where should i live and it's like if you live in the valley it's like oh move here you live in the west side it's like move to culver city you know everyone keeps telling me culver city everyone has an opinion yeah i i assumed i wanted to live in, in west hollywood when i was thinking about moving here yeah just because it's like where all the cool shit is and all that but now that i've been here and i've been actually spending most of my time in west hollywood yeah i'm less into that because I guess I'm learning that because LA isn't really a walkable city, you can only enjoy your neighborhood so much. You might as well just live somewhere beautiful and then just go and drive into the areas. That's the, yeah, that's the the give and take of, of LA. It's like you decide eventually I want to have more space because it doesn't make any difference living in West Hollywood. I still have to drive 15 minutes even to go to another part of West Hollywood. <laughs> that's very true. You know? So, and it's just, for me, I'm just like, I like to be out of the, the fray a little bit mm-hmm. you know i like to have my my hectic shit going on over here and i like to have a separate place to go to get away from that even when i was living in new york i lived in brooklyn because it's like a little bit more removed do you so. do you still have a winter coat no no that's I, amazing i threw it up that's incredible yeah i threw it up when i moved here do, like don't even bother having it tucked away somewhere just no, like throw it out no. i'm that's not really awesome. like a tuck stuff away kind of guy mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get rid of things real easily in my I, life I had, that was that was one of the biggest things i had to learn during the pandemic was my i was in an apartment for like eight years and it was a it was a good size apartment and i had so much shit throughout the place even just like out i had so much stuff mm-hmm. and then i went digging in the drawers and the drawers were full of stuff that i hadn't even seen since i put it in that drawer like eight years ago yeah and the best thing it was it was a lot of work but the best thing was when i moved just throwing away everything nah. donating everything i could yep. i was bringing like just like boxes and boxes of goodwill and like salvation army um 
so much stuff that I wanted to sell because I was like, I should probably get money back because I'm already spending a fortune on like moving. Yep. And at a certain point, I'm like, fuck it, I just want to get rid of this stuff. And so it was almost cathartic not trying to, you know, I maybe could have got like a couple hundred bucks for all the crap, but it's like just a cathartic feeling of just emptying out and having open space. It's the best. Dude, I couldn't agree with you more. And I went through this whole process and like realized how important it was when I wasn't realizing it. And like things just like the the clutter just builds up especially in the last year because of the pandemic and we just did a whole redo of the whole thing we're kind of still in the middle of it but um getting rid of shit like you realize like man like 50 percent of the stuff that i have is like just filler it's filler in my life it's completely unnecessary irrelevant stuff that you think like i should hold on to that just in case but just in case for what you know I had so much stuff that was I could use this at some point, and I never used it. Yeah, and um, I think it's that when I was younger, I mean, I probably was compensating for a bunch of crap, but it was I wanted. I whenever I saw something that was cool, I'd be like, I want to get it because I think it's cool. I want to look at it, and then of course that passes unless it's like something really spectacular. You're not going to want to look at it for more than a few days, really. Right. And then it would just be sitting there and collecting dust. And so when I moved into my new spot, I'm like, I don't want any tchotchkes any decor any of that kind of stuff i had like curved glass crap and stuff like that yeah i was like yeah. fuck this i want plants or i want records like that's it yeah and i have like one like candle holder thing and that's it otherwise it's just like plants yeah i think like the more you know you can just kind of take stuff out of your life i think it actually helps your brain focus on stuff that you need to focus on too because you're not surrounded by like clutter right but then i see guys like casey neistat and you see like their fucking studio and it's just like almost like a reflection of their brain it all it looks like where it's like there's just so much fucking shit but it's organized and it's like it only makes sense to that person you know like you, you know you see some people who are just these crazy creatives and like their creative space is just kind of hectic but somehow organized in a way that makes sense to them I, so when i was a kid um my door broke and like the the bottom hinge just came off yeah and instead of actually trying to fix it i just spent maybe 3 years of my life just literally picking up the door and just like putting it into the door frame and I had to close my door. Yeah. And so I think part of it was honestly because I was going through puberty and I don't want my parents walking in on me in any moment. But so that was <laughs> maybe that was that was some real social Darwinism there. But um it uh but it was weird how I mean we can adapt to like the pandemic proved we can adapt to shit going wrong in our lives very easily. Mm-hmm. And I for so long, I was just so used to, I had to pick up my door to move it. And it was like a heavy hardwood door that weighed like 50 pounds. So it was like a, there was one time where I had to go to the bathroom really bad. I'm pretty sure I peed in like a water bottle because I was, it was too soon. I like, I couldn't get the door open. And so that should be an alarm that like you need to fix something. But I was like 14 years old. Yeah. So I like, you know, I was like, I feel does. like if you don't fix it as soon as, as soon as it happens, it just becomes a part of your behavior and your routine. So then you're like totally fine with it. And that's like, there's something weird about our brain that does that. The thing is I like imperfection. Uh, I mean, mm. just going back to like talking about like the stuff we create, I kind of like that. Uh, some of the stuff we do is imperfect. Like I had a story that I won a national award for, and I noticed after reading it that I had a typo in there. And hmm. you're kind of raised to think if there's a typo in anything, then you failed, right? Right, right. But like sometimes there's just, I, w- I was, I-, I wonder if they noticed the typo, but like the the board that like awarded it, that gave me like, I think it was like runner up or something like that in the contest, um, they either didn't notice or didn't care. 
And I was that that was satisfying to me because that made me think I can still be recognized for what I do well, even if there's some uh, warts within it. And that was like very reassuring, I guess. Yeah. What was the typo? It was it wasn't like a it wasn't like a word that was misspelled. It was like there was a, a word missing from like the word the or uh or mm. and was missing from the sentence. Mm. And I just and I and it's funny because it was one of those stories where it went through so many rounds of editing. Yeah. That I don't know if it was a mistake that I made at the beginning and no one caught, or if it's like so many different people had their hands and just like editing it and stuff like that. Yeah. That somebody made the mistake. Cause that that happens sometimes. Right. That's interesting. And isn't it a thing too that like when we're reading something, our brain kind of puts it together before we even actually oh, yeah. read it and interpret it too. So it doesn't really even matter like what the order of the words is and stuff like that. Yeah, there's, I forget what the phenomenon is called, but like when you like read a, a bunch of sentences and there's words missing from it or there's right. letters missing from it and your brain can still put together. Yeah. It is fascinating because I mean, that is how we get stuck in complacency in so many ways. It's just that we won't even notice that something is wrong until somebody actually points out to us that there's something missing from what you're doing or mm. like you're doing something completely wrong. Cause it's once you can figure out a way to adapt and get something done, you don't really care unless you really want to take a step back and really be introspective about, is this the way I want to do stuff in my life? Yeah. Well, our brain's looking for like the path of least resistance, right? Sure. So like routines and behaviors are like very easy paths of least resistance for us to like get comfortable in, which is why I feel like so many successful people always talk about like, Oh, you know, I love fear or like I love like going towards risk or any of these like cliche things that you see on some like motivational TikTok or something like that. <laughs> like, but there's truth to it because it's actually training our brains to, you know, or it's not, not that it's training our brains. It's just like kind of taking us out of that comfort zone that we like to fall into in our brains. And the more we do that, the more we kind of personally are comfortable, like, you know, doing that and with risk comes reward. I I know I have to take a lot of big risks in my job, like reporting stuff where it, what's weird about journalism is basically if you get two sources and you're confident in those sources, that's generally considered the clearance point. Um, thankfully, because of where I work, I can actually check with a few other people to see if this sounds right to them, stuff like that. So that's so that gives me an extra level of comfort in knowing that what I'm saying is right. But like when I report stuff, it's basically I try to get I, I'll get a tip from one place. And then I'll try to get a source on the opposite side of the story mm. to find the middle ground and find the truth within there. And then generally want to find even another source just to like be really comfortable that it's accurate. And then even then you have to kind of shape the way you're putting it out there to try to you know, reduce the risk of it being incorrect. And it's not so much about like making sure that I don't have a mistake so people look down on me, but more so just like making sure I do by, do right by the people that I'm reporting about. And that like I'm capturing them accurately and portraying them accurately, but it's there is this massive fear when you put it out because when you put it out, you're like unless you see like the actual hard proof, which you very rarely ever get to do. Maybe like the top guys do, but I don't uh, very often. Um, unless you have that, you like don't really know if it's 100 percent true. And so basically, it just like gets out there and blows over. Yeah. And it's funny. I had a I had like a huge report recently that was like a massive national story and. A lot of people got very angry at me for it. They thought it was bullshitting, stuff like that. Um, I put out another report afterwards that a lot of people mistook as being contradictory, but it wasn't really contradictory. It was kind of more of like a an evolution of the previous thing. But either way, the point is, is that even when I put it out and I felt great about the veracity of everything I was putting out, I wouldn't have put it out if I didn't, if I wasn't like certain that it was accurate and that I had multiple perspectives on it. Like one of the players hit me up and he's like, I can't believe you knew all that stuff. And like mm. that was... 
that was just like such a huge relief because I'm like, I really, I'm pretty sure this is all right, but there's always a seed of doubt. And having somebody like that I know knows who I hadn't talked to before being like, yeah, that was, that was all accurate. Like that was just this massive relief. And that gives you the comfort level to then go out and do it again. Um, but of course you, you kind of, I, I fell into that trap when I first started breaking news of thinking like now that I'm starting to break news and people are starting to come to me that I can like start kind of rolling with it. And you have to be very careful to take a step back. Um, Cause I'm sure I've gotten some stuff wrong at some point in my career, but I like, I only report like, five percent of the stuff i hear at the most probably not even that much mm. um which is funny because most people assume like anything that i have i'm putting out there it's like no like very little of what you have you can actually put out there just like you probably make a hundred songs for an course, album you only yeah. put out like 10 of them and what's your process for determining whether or not something is like newsworthy in that sense is it just because uh, you know well so a lot of it is that it's personal stuff and i just i don't want to expose no somebody's personal life it, yeah. yeah it's um like i I, I would think that I'm more person friendly in that like I don't I don't want to put out something on someone just for the sake of like driving my own business. Um, so I generally will like sit on most stuff that I hear. Um, and also I think it's that so much of the stuff I hear is very subjective. And so um, so like a lot of the stuff I put out recently was pretty subjective stuff, but I got it from so many different angles and I tried to frame it in a way that showed this is representing some people's viewpoints within like the situation, not everybody's viewpoint. Unfortunately, a lot of the public is just going to, they're going to kind of miss that nuance or they're mm. not even going to see that nuance because they're getting it from somebody else playing telephone, that kind of thing. So it's going to evolve into people thinking I portrayed in a way that I didn't really portray it. Um, and it's like, I, at first I was freaked out about that. Now I've kind of learned to live with it. Um, and I've, I've just lived with when you're operating in the public eye, you're just like, you just have to accept that people are not going to understand you accurately. They're not going to see what you're doing accurately all the time. Um, and I generally don't have a problem with it until I start getting like death threats and stuff like that. Yeah. Or like the other day I saw somebody uh, say something like, I, I can't believe Jared Weiss's house isn't on the internet right now. Like kind of like, like we want to like go like stalk him and threaten him. And like, that was mortifying, obviously yeah. it's kind of crazy. Cause like in sports, people get angry and take things personally in a way that they don't in most other fields. Yeah, only like politics. Yeah, think that's think I'm not in well, politics. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's uh, maybe another hard one. But yeah, exactly. But it's weird because like people will, like I'll see people say stuff about me all the time that I I, I don't even know where they got it from. Mm. But like I kind of understand that where they're like like people will like I notice that people keep saying that I, I always am writing hit pieces, and I thought about it. I'm like, I think I've written like three negative stories out of like a hundred in the last right. year. Right. And so, but I get it. Cause like maybe people only really notice when I'm putting stuff out, when it's like the stuff that blows up and they see that it's like a lot of negative stuff. Um, and I think the only part of that that's frustrating is that I'll spend so much time talking about the subject in a positive way. And then a lot of people only see it when I'm portraying it in a negative way or even not even negative way, but just like in a balanced way. But of course, and you know, today, whenever you pre present something in a balanced way, people only fixate on the negative stuff. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's kind of uh, refreshing though to hear your kind of journalistic integrity through this. Whereas, like, you know, and I'm not trying to toot your horn too much, but I'm just Please saying, don't. you know, <laughs> uh, it, it seems like we've kind of lost that a little bit in the last, you know, five ten years. Oh yeah. And I'm curious, kind of, how you feel about that, not just in sports, but in journalism, you know overall it's going through so many changes and there's just so much kind of like media out there now and like there's youtube news channels and i'm sure it's even in sports too it's like you know your average person covering 
different things. And so, you know, how do you kind of see that all playing out? Like these massive changes that are happening in sports media and in general news media. Like, where do we go from here? Well, so in sports media, it's really funny because there's a lot of people that will build followings on Twitter or on YouTube or stuff like that. And they'll start putting out like kind of like what seem like big news breaks. And so they get a ton of retweets and aggregation, stuff like that. And you have no idea where these people are getting their stuff from, um, which which is what you want, right? Because like people guess who my sources are all the time. It's always funny to see that because yeah. like they're always so far off. Like they think they always think it's the most obvious person. And my response to that would be, I I want to protect my sources. So do you really think I would I would put something out directly from the most obvious source right. in most of these situations? Right. There are some situations where that is going to happen. Um, but I mean, maybe that's happened with me like once, basically. But uh, yeah, it's never who it's never who the people think it is. But so, so yeah, so like, there's a lot of these reporters now that like they kind of come out of the woodwork with stuff about other teams that aren't like the teams that they're around. And so, hey, maybe they really do have something. I do think. I mean, I know it's pretty like it's easy for anybody to make shit up for sure. Um, but I think a lot of people think they have a legitimate source and they're willing to just go with it. And they're not being careful or cautious. And yeah. I think it's because a lot of people just recognize that you can get shit wrong and people aren't going to really remember that it's wrong. They're just going to remember that your name or they're going to follow you and they're not going to pay attention. to The, well, the incentive system is, is not in line with like integrity and like ethics. It's in line with like viewership and attention, right? Like, I mean, my, my ethos was always to play the long game. That's how I, that's how I got to the stage I'm at in my career, which was, like when I got out of college, I started working for the government and was doing this part time. And I turned down some like solid opportunities. I think most people would go for, um, so that I could continue to work for my government job during the day and continue to try to really do what I was doing at a high level and wait for like the gr a great opportunity to emerge. And it took me longer to get to where I wanted to get. And like, I had some really close friends that kind of catapulted past me. Um, and I mean, they were, they're, they're, I'm like their biggest fan. And so I'm like, I, I think that they deserve what they got. Um, and, th and they also took the risk of going all in, which I didn't take. And I kind of had the luxury of not doing that. And you know, I feel bad about that to a certain degree. Uh, but I think that just like never jumping at a chance to like make shit up or run with a flimsy source on the thing, stuff like that. And really, really taking my time going through a lot of periods where I like, I didn't think I would make it in the end. I actually, I almost quit. Uh, the industry because I was working at a company where I was just really unhappy. They were grinding me to the ground. They weren't compensating me well enough. There was a ton of pressure. And I was, I was like, I was when the season was over and I like fulfilled the season for them. So I didn't want to dish them in the middle of the year. I was gonna tell them, thank you, but I'm gonna walk away from this. I was going to go back to a company I was at previously and just start just like do it for as a hobby basically. Mm. Um, and the thought was like super depressing. It was, it was taxing my relationship. I was working a hundred hours a week and barely sleeping. Like it was killing me. I just had to do it. And thankfully, like right when I was making that decision, I got scooped up by my current company, and it's you know, my life it, like changed my life completely. It's but funny how like life works like that. Yeah. Sometimes. But if I tried to take shortcuts and tried to um, be too cavalier with my reporting, or try to just be or like try to uh, act very uh, like TikToky and basically like try to. Um, turn myself too much into a brand instead of focusing on like the actual craft itself. 
I don't think I would have gotten to where I got to now. I would have topped out at a much lower level. And like, I'm not, I'm doing well. I'm at one of the best companies in this industry. And I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the work that they, that we do. And uh, the reputation of the company is way more on the other people in the company than it is on me uh, as far as building that up. But um, I think by being there, I probably have established myself at a certain level of performance, I guess. And so I just, I don't, I see a lot of people trying so hard and so desperately to make it in the industry that they kind of make themselves look like a fool basically. And they just mm. don't realize that the they're basically blacklisting themselves from working for a lot of these top companies they want to work for because they're trying way too hard to be a brand. Um, whether it's like them doing Twitch streams where they're basically screaming at the screen and they right. think that's it. And right. like, sure, they have a following of like a thousand people that think that, like, oh, this is hilarious. But most people like in the serious levels are looking at them like, what the fuck is this person doing? Well, if you're if you're building your own brand in that sense, then then a, a more established brand or company is not going to say like, oh, let me take a chance on this thing because then it's a reflection of their brand, right? Like, you know. And maybe that person, that's not their goal. Yeah, know? And sure. I think a lot of people feel that way now. Right. Yeah, well, a lot of people are trying to do their own independent thing now, and if they can have their own little niche pocket of people and monetize that in a way, maybe that's a successful business for them, for sure. And I've always felt, maybe because I'm just not really an entrepreneurial person, but I never wanted to be on my own. Hmm. You I'm like not. having the kind of resources of the... Yeah, and the resources are phenomenal. Like I get to work with great reporters. It's like a lot of the time, if I have one source on something and I'm trying to get another source, I'm not getting something I want, I can go to another reporter and work with them and partner up with them on it. Right. And that's allowed me to do a lot of like work that I just didn't really think was ever going to be realistically possible for me. Yeah. And then that's allowed me to start to be able to do stuff on my own because like I continue to improve from there and get more sources and stuff like that. So I wanted to be part of that structure. And I also just didn't want to have to be on my own with like health insurance and yeah. just like, and, and have in being attached to a company. I mean, for one, you have to live up to being attached to that company. You have to behave in a manner. that's not unbecoming to them, which I would just want to behave in that manner anyway. Um, and you have to produce at a certain level and you have to be like, you have to represent that brand. Well, that's a pressure that frankly, a lot of people just don't want to have to deal with because right. they want to be their individual self. But right. I've also learned eventually that I had to get over myself at a certain point. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because I think a lot of people are you know struggling with that in this it, it, like right now too because I think a lot of people are are trying to look at their life and like determine whether or not they're going to go the route of doing it themselves in, in in a lot of industries like I feel like there's a weird labor thing going on right now where people are actually reconsidering careers and reconsidering what they want to do with their life because of the pandemic and because we had this time to reflect where like we've never had that before. And so, you know, people are rightfully seeing that they can potentially do something independently and make comparable amounts of money doing that. Right. Uh, but on the other side of that too, there's the resources, the, you know, the, the benefits, all these things that, that traditional companies, you know, come along with. Well, I mean, also just like a lot of the American economy just treats workers like dog shit, right? Right. And so right. Um, I've been really fortunate. I've worked at places that I think treat their employees really well for the most part. But I also, I wasn't, a, I was one that I didn't feel like that way before. Yeah. And it made me want to quit. So I totally get that. But when you were very close, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah for sure. And um, I mean, it's definitely a luxury to, to, to like feel like you can, that you want to be a part of a, a larger identity and brand and stuff like that that you don't feel like you have to 
set out on your own and that the feel and to feel that you can actually achieve that because mm-hmm. it's like it's a hyper competitive position to get to, right. get to like one of those kind of companies so a lot of people just feel like they're starting from scratch and the only way to get out the door is just to be able to catapult themselves and i think it's good to a certain point and then maybe at a certain point because frankly i think one of the biggest benefits of like working for a major media outlet is learning from experienced people, whether it's like the editors and the people that manage the company or from other reporters that I've worked with, I've grown so much in the last couple of years being there than I had in the entire like eight years before that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, but people now are are kind of like not getting that experience and kind of oftentimes getting, I see it in the music world too, getting like crazy amounts of exposure prior to having any of that stuff to be able to look at as, you know, uh, guidance. In, in your career and so it's kind of a interesting time right now where you know people get put into like positions fireworks fourth of july oh, okay. um yeah we got shots popping I off somebody on the like crashed in the building yeah, yeah i know right um yeah I, I, th- that happened last night too i was like what the hell was that and i was like oh, i guess fourth of july see that's, in la it gets crazy they go with the fireworks whenever like, i'm in la crazy. i feel like there's always fireworks going off them i was here it's, in november before i the don't pandemic know why yeah people love fireworks out here did you hear about that shit the other day about the fireworks that were seized from this fucking house and then they no. tried to blow oh my god this is fucking ridiculous dude they seized five thousand pounds worth of illegal fireworks Holy shit. at this house and the police put all the fireworks in the bomb truck that they have, and they they were like, "We're gonna detonate this this truck, and it should be totally fine because this is like the bomb-proof truck. This is where we detonate explosives and like whatever, right?" So they try and detonate this this thing. The whole truck just explodes yeah, on the street. Yeah, that's like a two-ton dude. bomb, probably right. Twenty people injured. Like, oh my god, it, like huge fuck up by the police why wouldn't they just resell the fireworks to like legal fireworks usage that doesn't make any I sense i don't even know i think they were like illegally manufactured fireworks oh, okay. and some of them were like illegally manufactured like explosive devices essentially Holy like shit. not for like any like wait so did they do it like on the street in front of the place where they seized it yeah they what just the fuck? they put this truck uh, and there's a video of it they put this truck literally on the street and they knocked on the doors and they were like, hey, we're going to detonate this, this you know, device or whatever. And we got it in the bomb-proof truck, so it should be fine. But we're just letting you know. And they knocked on a bunch of doors and some people didn't answer because they're like, fuck these guys. And so those people who didn't answer stayed in their house because they didn't know. They Holy weren't told shit. by the police that it was going to explode. And so the truck just fucking, you got to see the video. The truck just fucking ex- exploded. $500,000 bomb truck just completely gone. And, and all those people's homes, I assume, were All destroyed. those people's homes, not completely destroyed, but like glass blown out. People were injured from shrapnel and and it's just horrible, dude. Like, what a oh fuck up. God. I mean, maybe they felt like they couldn't drive the items without it potentially blowing up, but still. Like, so they're going to blow it up in the fucking right? neighborhood? Oh like, <laughs> that's horrifying. No, I hear you. I mean, maybe that's what they were thinking, but they, they needed to like establish more of a you know, perimeter where people needed to get out, I feel like. I mean, that it's a very different scenario, but that reminds me of, I don't know if you, you were out here already when the Boston bombing happens. Yeah, I, I but, wasn't out here, but I was driving back from Connecticut the day that that happened. We were going to go to the city to go hang out for the marathon. It's crazy. I actually was planning to go watch at the finish line that day. Yeah. And for some reason, I decided to stay home. I just wasn't feeling up to it. Yep. I would have been right there. The, yeah, the yeah. shootout that happens... Mm 
it was in the town called Watertown. Watertown, yeah. And my my girlfriend at the time lived like right down the street from there. Mm. And I was just remember being so livid that they like engaged him in a firefight in the neighborhood. And there were like bullet holes. I think I remember there was like a bullet hole through like the head of someone's desk chair. Where like if that person was sitting there, it would have it would have hit them right in the head and killed them. And it just like it blew my mind that they. I mean, I. I don't really know the operating procedure for these things. Like, I don't know if like, do you, there is no fucking operating procedure. Like, yeah, yeah, but like, there isn't in a situation like that, high stress, like they're, they're all bets are off. Yeah. And like, and like, obviously these guys were like, I guess when they got cornered, like they tried to blow them up more bombs and shit. So like they were like active, they were committing that terror in that moment. So like, I get that, but it was just kind of like mortifying and just infuriating to know that they right. were cornering them in the middle of a residential neighborhood. But also I get it. Cause like they were hanging in that area, trying to have the protection of being in that area. So. Yeah, no, I get it though. But like, you got your girl in that area. You're like, what the fuck are they, yeah. like, they doing? I'm just here? like, like fearful for my like people in my community. Yeah, a hundred percent. It was a miracle nobody got hurt again right. in that like, situation. Take any situation where a bunch of people have guns, and you know, there's a high stress situation. Like, it's just a recipe for you know people to make bad decisions and quick decisions sure. because the stress level is like you know through the roof i mean so procedure and I'll policy go. is out the window in a situation like that where you're dealing with these two terrorist guys who have been on the run who already killed a cop and then killed a bunch of people at the marathon they didn't give a fuck they would have done anything sure to to kill those dudes you know and it's amazing that the jokar the younger brother survived that night honestly for real yeah i mean that that messed up everybody like the the carjacking that they did happened at the gas station that i use yeah like i go there all the time yeah. around the time i usually would go fill up there no so. that was crazy man i mean yeah. i remember being in boston and it just being uh locked down i mean the fact that you know if this was way before the covid right like the fact that they locked down the fucking city so that they could look for these two guys but yeah uh, man, this is this has been a great time fucking catching up with you dude and and, and having you on the show man i'm really appreciative and i'm glad that, that i caught you while you were in la and this just worked out perfectly man so i, I mean cool. if you have rye whiskey i'm gonna show up that's yeah you know i got multiple options you know i had to come prepared oh, beers it, it whiskey whatever you need that's it's a Cam could show. That's what we do. That's why it's my favorite podcast in the world. <laughs> my man, Jared Weiss, dude. No, thank, thanks for coming on the show, man. This has been a good talk and appreciate it. I never asked you, what does the 1993 on your shirt mean? So it was the year I was born. Okay. And it was the first mixtape that I ever put out when I was in high oh, school, 2010-ish, yeah. okay. called 1993. So these are my new shirts. I've got the 1993 on the, on the front. On the back, it says Lamp City, which is like my brand, also the name of my first album. Um, and your last album technically right and my last yeah. album too well, I never heard the Lamp City explanation what is Lamp City so when I was growing up me and my friends we would always be like we're lamping like we're chilling <laughs> yeah you know like we would just be like oh we're lamping like like oh, come over to the, the house like smoke some weed we're lamping like we're Lamp City right now you I know? love it I love and it. so That's like great. eventually lamping transitioned into Lamp City like we're Lamp City right now and when I was coming up doing music I was like like Wiz Khalifa was like the thing at the time I was telling you. And so he had like Taylor gang as this kind of adjacent brand that was connected to his music and something that he could shout out and like whatever. And I just thought that that concept was so cool to have like an adjacent kind of fan base brand thing. Um, and so I was like, I want to call it lamp city. Like that's like my, my thing, my brand. And then it's just kind of cycled from there. And then the first album that I did was called lamp city and that album ended up doing really well, and people. That's how I found out about it. Yeah, so I'm looking at the Lamp City uh, sign right behind yep. the camera here. Yeah, I love that. exactly. Yeah. So that, it's just you know one of those things where it kind of 
was a random little thing that I just ended up making a choice on. And then it just kind of created this whole life of its own. So what do I have to do to be a resident of Lamb City? Uh, be on this podcast. So, all right. You already did it, dude. You're in the crew. It's what I've always wanted. <laughs> but yeah, man. Uh, no, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. It was a great talk. It's the Kamika show. We out of here. Jared Weiss. Peace, y'all. Uh, follow him on Twitter. Too. He's got some good tweets. I know he's not going to self-promote himself, but Twitter, Instagram. Google me. Google him. Just Google, Google me. Google him.